0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listie and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you. For tuning in. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. My guest today is Lynn Tillman, author of a new work of nonfiction called Mother Care. My
1: mother said that to me about a month before she died. She was totally lucid. She was sitting up in bed. And I as usual I took the high road i learned that I probably should take the low road more often, but (laughs) I took the high road and I said, you know, mother, that's not a very nice thing to say to your daughter. It's not so nice to be so competitive. And then she said, I am competitive.
0: That was Lynn Tillman, author of a memoir called Mother Care on obligation, love, death, and ambivalence available now from soft skull it bills itself as an autobiographical essay i would call it a memoir you can read it and call it what you want to call it but lynn calls it an autobiographical essay it was just published yesterday mother care is a very rigorous book it is tough-minded it is incisive it is nuanced heartrending, clear-eyed And it is a deeply intelligent examination of the last 11 or so years of the life of Lynn Tillman's mother, Sophie Merrill Tillman, who died, I believe, at the ripe old age of 98. This book covers those last 11 years, Lynn's experience of them, Lynn's point of view. She and her two sisters were caregivers for their mother in that final decade and change. Charged with overseeing medical care, medical decisions, in-home care, the hiring and firing of doctors and home aides and all the rest. It's a part of life that many of us experience eventually. Maybe even most of us go through some version of this role reversal the child caring for a sick or dying parent what gives this book added dimension i think is the fact that lynn tillman was not particularly close with her mother and in fact she openly admits in the book that she didn't love her mother Lynn Tillman's mother was a tough and complicated woman, as you will read. And yet, at the same time, there was a deeply felt, or at least persistently felt, sense of obligation within Lynn to do what she needed to do to help her mother in those final years. And I really enjoyed this book. Any book from Lynn Tillman is cause for celebration, and this one a very intimate work of nonfiction brings us into her life and into her mind with uncommon clarity and bracing candor. Mother Care is a terrific read. I tore through this book. It is available now from Soft Skull. You will hear my conversation with Lynn Tillman coming up momentarily This is her second appearance, I should add, on the Other People podcast. She first appeared in episode 509 in March 2018. Today's program is brought to you by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices in literature that push boundaries and expand perspectives. Vintage is proud to offer the debut story collection by Nada Alec, entitled Bad Thoughts, in a Rave Review. The New York Times has this to say, quote, Alec depicts contemporary womanhood with a wry, uncensored voice reminiscent of those in Miranda July's off kilter socal tales. End quote. This is an exhilarating and delightfully deviant debut story collection, that with comedic precision and compulsive irreverence explores the most surreal and inadmissible fantasies of contemporary women. Once again, it's called Bad Thoughts. It is the new story collection from Nada Alec available right now from Vintage Books. All right, so my guest today, is Lynn Tillman and I could not be more pleased to have had the chance to talk with Lynn again as she celebrates the publication of this new book Mother Care uh, once again it builds itself as an autobiographical essay memoir or autobiographical essay you can split the difference it's a wonderful wise unsettling fascinating work of nonfiction about deep and difficult human relationships And about the immovable realities of impermanence, sickness, and death in human life. Subjects which I would wager, particularly in Western society, are often neglected or repressed or looked away from. Even by writers. And so it is particularly wonderful to have a writer with Lynn Tillman's intellect and psychological makeup with her philosophical bent and hardcore commitment to the truth as she sees it she is not a writer who pulls punches she certainly doesn't in this book and the reader is left better for it i highly recommend mother care lynn tillman is a novelist a short story writer a cultural critic her novels include haunted houses motion sickness cast in doubt no Lease on Life, which uh, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. There's another called American Genius, a Comedy, and just a few years ago, Men and Apparitions. Lynn's nonfiction books include The Velvet Years, Warhol's Factory, 1965 to 1967. Another book called Bookstore, The Life and Times of Jeanette Watson and Books and Company, and... What Would Lynn Tillman Do?, which was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Lynn has been a recipient of a Guggenheim and a writer's grant from the Andy Warhol uh, Foundation. She is a writer in residence and a professor in the Department of English at the University of Albany in New York. And I'm just so pleased to have her back on this show and to get to share this conversation with all of you right now. Here she is, guys. This is Lynn Tillman, and her new book, once again, is called Mother Care.
1: I called her mom, but when we talk about mother, it's about mother. We don't talk about mom, my sisters and I. She's always referred to as mother. And by using mother, which obviously was very deliberate, I avoided what I think is the horrible American tendency to write about mom or mommy or my mom or something like that, which just seems so adolescent to me. I have a real aversion to it. So in student stories, they're always writing about my mom, and I'll cross it out, and I'll say, mother. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in direct dialogue, sure, mom. But I don't know. Also, mother allows readers to see the enormity of that category. It's a huge category for uh, for anyone who has had one. Uh, and most of us have had, unless we've been in foster homes and don't know our mother and so on. Or we've had many mothers.
0: This is, uh, as I was saying, you know, a very tough-minded book. Like, really admirably so. Uh, I-, I love books like this that are kind of unflinching in the face of very difficult, very philosophically complicated and emotionally complicated subject matter. You're a great guide through this terrain, and I wonder about the writing of the book if it was as difficult as I imagine it would be to look at this stuff closely and clearly, and to be as candid as you are on the page, uh, in particular about the, the tough stuff.
1: When I began it was about a year after my mother died. And I wrote 14 pages rather quickly, just sort of telling the story in some kind of chronological way. Uh and then I stopped after 14 pages because my mother had recently died, and I didn't want to live through, I didn't want to live through those days again, uh, or those years, 11 years. So I put it aside. And after Men and Apparitions came out, and after about 2019, I guess, I started to think about it again so as to have something to write about. We're always looking for something to write that we can write for a long time (laughs) so as to keep us from horrible depression. Um, And um, I decided, oh, I'll return to mother care, which had always been its name. And then I started and then COVID struck and lockdown, which for many people was horrible, very very horrible for me had this uh, solitude I mean it was also horrible in many ways of course Uh, but I continue to have an income from teaching which many people didn't have so on Uh, but I could return to mother care with with this solitude and uh, write it and I had some aids in that I had my diaries so I had my mo- some of the calendars in my mother's apartment that gave me some sense of time and, you know, when she had her first operation and things like that. Still, most of it was from memory. It was very, very sharply etched in my memory. And as you know, we, we write to remember and to forget simultaneously. <laughs> Right. And I'm hoping to forget all of it one of these days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get, I want to get listeners oriented because this is a book that is about an extended period of time. Forgive me for not remembering the exact number of years. 11. 11 years, right. So more than a decade where you had a mother in declining health, the end of her life. She lived to be 98? Yes, so, robust good health for most of her life, but oh, then yes. she then was yeah. sh- she was diagnosed, I believe, with normal pressure hydrocephalus?
1: Yes, which is uh, too much fluid. She was finally diagnosed with normal pressure hydrocephalus, but the first diagnosis or second was Alzheimer's, which we knew was not, my sisters and I knew was not correct because mother's symptoms came on very quickly. And it wasn't one of those wretchedly slow descents into forgetting everything, not knowing anything anymore, not being the individual you were. I mean Alzheimer's is is just a nightmare for the for the living. The person who has it most likely went thoroughly and it doesn't know which may be a blessing but i wouldn't want to live with it but we knew it wasn't that and we had to find a doctor who would diagnose it correctly and we did he's dr a in the book
0: okay i want to stop you here because this was one of the like clear-eyed aspects of the book among many clear-eyed aspects that really resonated with me and that I so appreciated seeing uh, in a book is the fog that often descends over the medical diagnosis or medical diagnoses process and I have a son with a complicated health history or a complicated health situation and when he was in the process of being diagnosed it was the first time that I had ever been subjected to a situation where I realized that doctors didn't know everything. I think prior to having to directly engage with a health crisis of one kind or another, it's easy to believe that these things are kind of linear. You go in, they diagnose you, they know how to treat you. Or if it's unfortunately fatal, they treat you the best they can until you pass away. But that's far from the actual lived reality of it. Doctors can be wrong. Diagnoses can be murky. There are areas where they just have lots of blank space, and what you articulate so well is how much of the onus is on either the patient or those in his or her direct care, usually family members, to oversee and manage health decisions and to, at times, refute the advice of doctors or go in search of additional opinions that can shed further light. So, I just loved seeing that because I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it's like. And it can be very disorienting and difficult for those who are caring for the sick person.
1: I immediately thought also during the AIDS epidemic and also still now, there are people who rely on their friends and not family to take care of them, to be um, uh, proxies, health proxies. You always need a health proxy, and you need a health proxy uh, who is not easily intimidated. I think the medical profession and some of the doctors in it, many of them, don't express doubt, and in part, it's the patient's fault, because the patient wants a diagnosis that's certain. Things around the brain, things around the neurological system, they're very, it's very, very hard to, to deal with, to get a correct diagnosis, I think. The brain is, you know, why we need to go into outer space when inner space is so much more complicated. Right. I mean, the brain is... Um, uh, still a mystery you know I mean obviously they're finding out things researchers and so on but you know just thinking about the fact that we have dreams which are generated perhaps in in the brain but they merge with or they are something that we call the mind when the dream comes we think my mind had this dream And the brain is, what is the brain relying on? It's relying on all sorts of stimuli of the day, as Freud would say, the the day of the night of the dream, and creates pictures, perhaps, or characters, and people come back from the dead. No one's dead in the unconscious. I mean, the brain is not mapped easily. And when four different neurologists, I think it was, looked at my mother's MRI. Two of them gave vastly different interpretations, and two agreed. But I think one said Alzheimer's, another two said it was just an aging brain. I mean, they're measuring the ventricles. They're measuring. I mean, it's it's not it's not science yet.
0: Mm. And when you get when you get two different diagnoses, you have two professional neurologists. Yes. Looking at the same picture and telling you disparate things. Yes, that yes. is unnerving. Like, it okay, is, who do it I believe?
1: Is. Well, then you get a third opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you also and, and this is for those of us who have had a good education, where uh, have more tools to fight with the doctors people who um, speak a foreign language and not english in this country speak people who haven't been that well educated but are smart as hell feel much more intimidated of course educated people feel feel very intimidated everyone can be very intimidated by doctors i think the better the doctor the more likely the doctor is to express we just don't know this is what i think it is I could be wrong, and let's see if we can take a test for that, uh, if it can be tested. And if it can't be tested, look, we have to try something. Why don't we try this? If this doesn't work, maybe that will work. That's a good doctor.
0: Right. I think, too, there's an emotional delicacy to moving on from a doctor or, in essence, firing a doctor that you, you don't feel comfortable with. Uh, You know, it's hard to fire somebody. It's hard to say, you know what, this isn't working out. We don't like you, basically.
1: (laughs) You basically have to ghost him.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. And it's like, oh, God, you know. And like, I've been through that a little bit, uh, you know, just with like physical therapy lately where I'm like, is this the right fit? And how's this guy going to feel if I just stop showing up? And, you know, so there's that part of it that I think sometimes keeps people in like professional medical relationships that really aren't serving them best. And so you right. do ha- you have to be tough-minded about it. You have right. to not be intimidated and just operate in the best interest of the patient. That's right. Uh, sometimes easier said than done. And yes. in this case, the patient was your mother who on the page is rendered really beautifully in her complexities. She was a complicated woman and you had a difficult relationship with her which you're very blunt about
1: yes i I didn't see any reason to obfuscate i think i think that obligation as compared with love was um, my motivation in um, sticking by my mother over those years and my two older sisters had their reasons for doing that. I mean, it's interesting about conscience, I think, and how conscience is developed. I couldn't, even though I didn't like my mother, even though my mother had been very uncaring about me in many, many ways, I couldn't just leave her, let's say. I I, I, I couldn't. Uh, I wanted to, um, but People want to think you do things always out of love, and especially in these kinds of instances, but sometimes it's out of conscience. I didn't feel guilty about not liking my mother. I never felt guilty about that. Why? Why? Because she wasn't nice to me, (laughs) because she she was competitive with me, because she was not supportive of me for the most part. It was hard to like her. It wasn't something I, I wanted to have a mother who loved me. I, I used to, uh, in the morning before kindergarten, I would run out of our house in the suburbs and go to the house of my f- friend on the next block because her mother was very nice to me <laughs> and she would make me cereal <laughs> in the morning. I would just run out of my house.
0: <laughs> and your mom didn't make you cereal?
1: Well, my, there were two older daughters and there was my father. And mostly they were going to the city, they had to make the train, the Long Island Rail, it was just chaos in the morning. And um, one day as I was running out of the house, I hoped undetected, my mother stopped me as I opened the door and she said, you like so-and-so better than me, and I said, oh no, no, I don't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No mother, of course not, of course not. Of course I did. (laughs) a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, you know, you didn't like your mother. Yes. But you did have some admiration and respect for her. Yes. And she was, I think, you know, generationally speaking, a woman who did have interests and abilities that you know due to confluence of circumstances the times that she lived in were not allowed to be realized is that a fair assessment and maybe I, that-
1: think, that, I think that that's true right to say I didn't like her it's more I didn't love her I liked aspects of her and I try to put that I put that in the in the book uh, as much as I could because she was not uninteresting. She was not a stupid woman. She was, I think, raised in a, a, a really not loving family herself, which, and I think it really damaged her. And damaged her ability to be able to love. i don't I don't think I think she loved my father, but it was a love that was kind of like possession.
0: yeah, dev- and, devouring is the word, you know, like it's yes. very a lot of jealousy yes. when when your father directed his attention and affection toward anyone else, including their children together.
1: Yes, that's right. that's right. She just couldn't she just couldn't stand it. She wanted, and those eleven years, were, when she was lucid, probably very soothing to her because we all paid enormous attention to her all the time. (laughs) She was the center. She became central to the family dynamics. It was just, we had to think about her all the time, which was a nightmare for me.
0: (laughs) So she was very sharp, and had a lot of, I think, creative talent and ability that was probably latent or unrealized. And there's an anecdote that you share in the book about, I think, the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938, if I have yes. the date right. And it's a, it's a great illustration of the sharpness of your mother's mind. I thought it would be fun to share with listeners you know because she experienced it she was listening with your father i believe to that broadcast as it unfolded which caused such havoc in american life
1: that's right so it's on the radio and my father starts getting very anxious and my mother says let's see if it's on any other station and when it wasn't she just that was it many of their friends went to bed probably had sex and went to bed thinking <laughs> thinking the martians were going to take over whatever it was. <laughs> and my mother she was very sharp and that was smart let's turn to another station
0: yeah i mean that's it's funny that's been part of american lore Forever. I've been hearing about the War of the Worlds broadcast since I was in school, you know, as a young, young person, yeah. and I never heard of anybody relate the experience in that way. Like, hey, flip the station, see if the other channels are co-. <laughs> Of course you would do that, right? But <laughs> right. people lose their wits when they're, uh, when they're frightened, and your mother, <laughs> and frightened. but your mother, you know, this I think squares with your assessment of your mother at another point in the book where you say she was, you know, one of her best qualities was that she was unflappable, in tough situations. She yeah. didn't she didn't freak out.
1: No. Not at all. Not at all. It's interesting. I don't know how she developed that, but I think she was in a very tough household growing up, and I think she had to in many ways in many ways fend for herself and figure it out so that she could do what she wanted to do and cope Uh, She went to two years of City College night school, which is when she met my father. He was also there taking something like six courses at night, which (laughs) was absolutely crazy. But that would be something that my father would do. And then the depression struck so hard, they, they couldn't do that. They just had to get they had to work longer hours and all all of that You yeah. mean
0: the Great Depression?
1: The Great Depression.
0: Yeah. What's interesting is that yeah, you know, there are moments I think you you briefly describe like moments from childhood that sort of uh, are emblematic of the ways in which your mother was uncaring. I think you call her a blunt and tactless woman. Yes. Uh, She kicked your friends out of your car when you're like 10 years old because they were chewing gum, like things like that.
1: (laughs) She was not well liked among my friends.
0: I can imagine her being intimidating.
1: Well, she she was. She was mean. You know, um, my friends, some of them were scared to come to the house because you never knew who was going to blow up. And often it would be my mother or she would be very critical. And uh, my father, it was, uh, did not feel like a safe home, especially for visitors. Uh, I was, you know, you get used to being treated not well, to the arguments going on and on and on. But I knew when I left home, more or less, I never wanted to be that person. I didn't want to be a person who Argued ferociously, I and and to this day, even with my vast years in analysis or psychotherapy, I I still am frightened by pe by anger by angry people. Mm. You know, I try very hard to hold my ground, but anger has its own velocity. You know, it it can really hit you hard if it's. Um, If it's big.
0: There's, you know, it's funny, we were talking about your mother's unflappability and how it's probably tied to the difficulty of her childhood environment, you know, how she sort of had to learn how to self-protect or whatever it was, you know, I feel like in a related way, there's an unflappability to you, like on the page and otherwise, with the added element of all the years that you've spent investigating yourself in psychotherapy and on the page, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, There's more emotional wellness or self-awareness to you, but I do feel like, well, that's what I'm saying about tough-minded. I'm just like, wow, this is why I love reading Lynn, is because I just know she's not going to pull punches, and she has the strength to sort of sit with the difficult stuff. Uh, That's exactly what I want from a writer.
1: Well, thank you. It was very important to me in writing this. First of all, the writing was very important to me. How the story is told is in the writing and I I don't like victim stories I think one of the great things about Paula Fox for instance her her short book The Coldest Winter was about her trip to Europe as a correspondent and a year after the war ended this is 1946 i mean pe- when you say the war ended unless you read books that explain to you what chaos it was you, it's, it's as if things go back to normal but of course they don't that takes many many years and of course we're still seeing world war ii and what's going on in ukraine and russia uh there's still that so things don't end neatly or maybe never never end and her book she she's writing it it's about her observations but it's not about her it's about what she's seeing and um it's less about her reaction to it she describes it and you can feel the weight of an emotion but she's not telling you what that emotion is and in this book i i wanted you're right, not to pull any punches. I felt I wanted, I wanted to be as honest as I could be from my point of view, how I saw it. And as I was writing it, something happened that I didn't expect. I realized that I needed to talk about my reaction to things. And that's not my way, usually. My fiction is not about my feelings, ever. It's always hopefully, translated into characters, or... And I, I always want the reader to experience something th- through the fiction, and not because I say, this was my experience, I was crying when I met him at the station, or something like that. Right. That's not what I would write. So, in this it was similar, I knew I had to be in there, I was the observer. But I wanted it to be very plain, very as as fact-based as possible in terms of what happened when and who was there, or who wasn't. Uh, but then I had my experience of it was filled with such ambivalence uh, and my relationship to my mother, I couldn't present it as if I weren't there. I was telling this story, I was there And this is the way I represented it. So that was interesting too. And I didn't give myself a pass. That was very important to me, not to make myself seem like a good person or so on. I didn't feel like a good person doing this. I felt I was obliged. I felt that there was a necessity placed on me, but I didn't think, oh, Lynn, you're such a good person. For doing this, And I just felt it was somehow my obligation, my duty, to do this,
0: yeah, you talk very openly in the book about the the selfishness. You're open about the fact that you were often selfish when it came to the caregiving. Yes, feeling put upon and bitter about <laughs> losing weekends and writing time because you had That's to it. go sit and and be with your uh, ailing mother. Yeah. And it was very fascinating and engaging to me as a reader, to see somebody be so open about such a thing, which is often buried.
1: Yeah. Well, there would be no point for me to write it in my own mind if I were going to dissemble and pretend I didn't have those thoughts or, or feelings. It just wouldn't have made sense to me. There would have been no reason to write it then. And actually, my favorite part of the book is... After my mother dies, maybe because she is dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that because that yeah. is a, a really, I mean, the, the it's not quite the end of the book. There's kind of a coda after that yeah. part of it, yeah. but that is really a powerful, probably the most powerful section of the book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's some of the best writing on death that I've ever read. Uh, it is. Thank you. Yeah, it is very bracing to read and just clear eyed. I want to talk a little bit about your father because in the timeline of your family's life you know he passed away much earlier than your mother did she lived i believe close to another 20 years after he right. passed away that's right and you have more affection or you had more affection for your father and yes. your grief for him is much deeper
1: yes yes i don't think that i grieved for my mother i do- i didn't grieve for her I, if there's grief, it's about not having had a loving mother. When I when I see my friends, um, some of whom have very loving parents, I think it's wonderful. I I think that that to have that in your life really makes a huge difference in how you live your life and what you feel about yourself. I was fortunate. Um, To love my father and to feel he loved me. I mean, I've questioned maybe he didn't love me and so on, but I felt he did, even though he was, um, you know, he would go from hot, hot, from nice to crazy sometimes in a second. He was probably would be diagnosed as bipolar or something like that. But uh, I was the last child, I was quite a bit younger than my sisters. And he wanted to play with me as a child. I, I don't remember playing with my mother at all. I mean, I think she was very busy with the other children who were six and nine years old when I was born. And they're much, they're fully developed then, not fully, but they're characters of, them, of their own. And I was just a baby. And I think my father enjoyed Playing with me, and that's those early feelings of being loved by him, I think are the reason that I was able to be here today.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, someone's got to give you I mean, because i, I I'll, I'll say, like having spent a bit of time talking with you, uh, you know, over these past couple of episodes that we've done together, that you're such a warm person. I don't sense any of the coldness that you describe in your mother. In you. Um, maybe there's like a like I said, that kind of tough mindedness. Like there's some sort of line you could draw from her to you. That unflappable, you know, quality is somehow Mm -hmm. echoed in your own life. But
1: that mostly, Brad, comes into my writing, I think. I I, I don't write about when
0: I'm flappable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't why would you, right? (laughs) When I'm
1: flapping all over the place. There goes Lynn flapping. No. I don't I don't write that. But uh yeah people i think it's because i'm interested in people my family on on the whole were very narcissistic not my father but i think there was a real streak of narcissism in my mother for one and i i very early reached out to people i i wasn't i didn't get caught up in the Family not in a way. I looked for friends. I wanted to get out of the house and um, Oddly going to summer camp was my salvation I Was sent first when I was six to an eight-week sleep-a-week camp. That was <laughs> not a good idea because I I remember going into that bunk as a six-year-old and sitting on my the cot and there was a rough wool blanket which was irritating my my skin and looking around and i didn't I didn't understand why I was there. <laughs> I didn't know what it was but then when I was eight I went to sleep away camp for eight weeks and I did that until I was 15. Uh, Pretty much, I think there was one year off, and it gave me a whole other world. I realized that there was another way to live and other people around, and I didn't have to be cornered, you know, in this corner. So, but um, the writing is very different from me, (laughs) the person. I have a way of writing. One person told me years ago they were afraid to meet me, because of my writing, and then when they met me they couldn't understand, you know, I was warm, I was nice, I wasn't severe, and all these things. You know, living is different from writing, you know, and I do like people. I am very curious about other people, Um, and when I write, I'm not thinking about myself at all. Interesting. Just, I just... I'm just trying to figure out what words go on the page, you know, I don't want to think about myself.
0: And to see clearly, and to honor, it feels like you're honoring, like in this book, you know, you're, like you said, you're honoring the truth, you're trying to be as deeply honest as possible. Yes. Like whatever, and whatever happens, you know, happens, and and you put it down, like that's kind of the, the ride that I felt like I went on as a reader, and. Uh, I think maybe some of us might have a lot of fear, like creative fear around being that honest, you know, being that exposed or implicating family members. You know, there are always these issues when you're writing a memoir or some piece of personal nonfiction.
1: That's why I stayed away as much as possible. My sisters are mentioned in the book. I don't name anybody. Mm -hmm. That's And other uh, their initials. Maybe one I name David, the man I live with. I name a friend Jane, but um, for the most part, people aren't given their uh, given names or just have an initial. All the doctors have an initial, which isn't even their correct (laughs) initial. Right. Um, But I didn't want to write from anyone else's point of view. I was writing mine. My sisters would write a different story if they you know if they were uh, writers one one sister is she's a poet but um, no I I was writing what I saw thought to some extent felt and um, some of it was was difficult to write and to remember yeah
0: is there any place like I mean within that framework of, of- leaving it to your own point of view exclusively is there any place that you would not go did you did you find yourself pulling back at any juncture in the writing
1: well I didn't write about family fights I just because everyone fights those those fights are uh, really not interesting they're of interest to the people fighting. But that's not the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell this story of not knowing anything, being subjected to having to learn everything, dealing with an aging and sick mother until death, and then the experience after.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think when when you say fighting, you're saying fighting in particular in the context of like Those those caregiving years, you know, where I can only imagine. I mean, there's fighting among siblings no matter what, but I would especially think that there would be there would have to be some conflict in 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 an emotional crucible like that. It's very difficult emotionally to be dealing with a dying parent.
1: Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, she wasn't dying all the time. She was dying in the last year. Right. I think that's she was dependent and sick. And her, the form of her illness was confusing because when there was more pressure on the brain from this fluid, she was less lucid. She was more confused. And that's in, when we could tell that the shunt wasn't working.
0: And the shunt, uh, so people understand, you know, with this uh, normal pressure hy- hydrocephalus, the treatment for it is to essentially create an internal drainage system. That's right. Uh, from the brain to, I believe, the stomach?
1: To the stomach. And it's 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 fascinating. It's a piece of plumbing. And that's why it, um, I mean, I give a little bit of the history of that. I did research for this book also. Of course, um, yeah. To explain things or explore things that I wanted to know about. There are pictures in the book. Some of them are quite odd and some are like pictures of the brain with uh, hydrocephalus or not. Um, I thought this was important to do. I think there's more known about NPH now than there was when my mother was ill with it.
0: So, and the 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 shunt, the pl- the internal plumbing that we're talking about, it's draining cerebral cerebrospinal fluid from the brain and then kind of emptying it out into the stomach. That's right. And I am I'm going to forget the word. What's the word for when they have to change the length of the shunt? A regression? A revision. a revision. Yes. So they have to sort of modify the shunt periodically if it essentially it's like a piece of plumbing so it gets clogged, right? That's right. What That's is right. I mean and and it's so strange to think of it in those terms because that really is operationally how it functions. It functions like plumbing. Yes. And it's there in your brain, you know, and, and it's
1: on the side kind of.
0: Yeah. I mean, how wild is that? And then the dramatic positive effect that it can have on somebody who previously is in a pretty difficult state physically, unable to walk. I mean, uh, hydrocephalus can affect your gait. It affects your cognition. I mean, you yes. wouldn't, you would know better than I, but it's like, it can have very dramatic impacts on a person's health. And then you install this plumbing and if you get if you get the revision right it can change somebody from being pretty badly impaired to being close to cognitively and physically normal
1: well if 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 it's not diagnosed why the diagnosis is so important is that unless it's diagnosed correctly the person can go on with the fluid building up and affecting the her new her neurological system uh, with damage that would be very very hard to repair I mean the brain does repair but it takes time and um, my mother lost a lot of time to uh, at least a year I think or maybe a year and a half to one it wasn't diagnosed correctly, to two, it was not functioning, and her neurologist said it was.
0: The, the The shunt was not functioning.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we knew there was something wrong with it, but this neurologist kept telling us that we weren't accepting that she was getting old. You know, it was arrogant and terrible and wrong. Right. And then we discovered, I talk about this in the book,
0: um,
1: that there was a test for it. And this arrogant guy didn't call for the test.
0: I mean, that is both infuriating and terrifying.
1: Yes, yes. That's when the doctor's ego and, uh, and sense that, you know, he is right. Uh, he doesn't need a test. You know, he doesn't need to be shown. A good doctor would have called for the test.
0: Would have had that healthy self-doubt.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's something, there's kind of a, like a sad irony to the fact that uh, in her, um, what's the word for it, I guess, sickened or, you know, declining state, you write, she sometimes told me she loved me, and she never had before. I remarked to friends on the irony that after my mother's brain was damaged, she loved me. <laughs> but really, she was incapable of anything but self-love. So, as she was in decline, she would sometimes look at you and say that she loved you. Right. And you're sitting there going, "What? What do you think? Like, just well, are, you, at, are you kidding at me?"
1: Those, at those moments, I would imagine she was my grandmother. You know, and don't grandmothers always love their grandchildren?
0: It's but easier. It's easier. When, when you're a grandparent, I feel like, I mean, I have not been a grandparent, but I got to feel like it's like, it's all the fun of, you know, having a baby without actually any of the responsive, like serious responsibility.
1: <laughs> yes. Although now we know that a lot of grandparents are taking care of their children's children for True. A, a lot of different reasons. True. Um, the, the nest has become um, a refuge uh, uh, during COVID, but before then, too. But I, in my case, I didn't know my mother's mother. I didn't know either of my grandfathers. And the only grandmother I knew uh, was, had, um, was senile. Uh, and, uh, I mean, she was my father's beautiful Russian crazy mother. <laughs> She wasn't crazy. I mean, she the senility was was very strange, but she had um, she would put newspapers, I remember going to visit her in her very nice apartment on not not far from the ocean, kind of in near Coney Island or something. She had a big apartment. My father really and his brother, Al, they really lo- loved her or attended to her or something. And I once visited there in this big apartment. I remember there was a Tiffany lamp or what I thought was a Tiffany lamp. But I was I thought that later. I was about six. And there were newspapers on all of the chairs with blankets over them. And I asked her why she, why are their Grandma, why are there towels on the newspapers? She said, she said, to keep the people in the pictures warm.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's kind of touching and sad. It is very touching. <laughs> I,
1: I just, you know, they were alive to her, those, those pictures. They needed to be kept warm. It was a moment, it was a gorgeous moment Right,
0: right Stunning I want to talk about the competitiveness We talked about how your mother, you know, in her decline would sometimes tell you she loved you With her her brain going through all this, uh, you know, all of these challenges And there's also a really stunning line in the book Where your mother looks at you and says, I would have been a better writer than you if I had wanted to be." That's quite a thing for a parent to say to a child. And I also don't think it's entirely uncommon for a parent to feel in competition with their child if they have a shared interest or if Mm -hmm. that child has realized a dream that the parent did not.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was very shocking. My mother said that to me about a month before she died. She was totally lucid. She was sitting up in bed. And I, um, as usual, I took the high road. (laughs) I learned that I probably should take the low road more often, but (laughs) I took the high road and I said, you know, mother, That's not a very nice thing to say to your daughter. It's not so nice to be so competitive. And then she said, I am competitive. That was it, I am competitive. Now that's stunning. That was really, really stunning. Now I I knew that she was to some extent because whenever my writing was mentioned, she would talk about this story she had written some of which I, which was never finished, some of which I put, and she would say, you have to publish that. She couldn't bear to hear about my writing, particularly in this state. Maybe she would have been different, you know, years before. I don't know. But she was very jealous. She was very competitive. And she said that to me. And some friends have said, well... You're lucky she, she was honest or she told you or something like that. But I don't know that I really would've would wanted to be told so bluntly, but my mother was blunt. And uh, so all my thoughts about her perhaps loving me or perhaps being a kinder person during those 11 years dissipated And she was, again, this nasty, competitive, jealous person who, more than jealous, she was envious, you know, and making the distinction, as Melanie Klein does, between jealousy and envy. Envy is when you don't want the other person to have what they have, you know. You want to have it, and you don't want them to have it. Whereas in jealousy, you just are jealous that they have it. You don't want to take it away from them. But my mother would have wanted to take it away from, from me. You know, I can find all sorts of reasons for my mother's behavior, uh, why she would be competitive. It was, you know, formed early on in her life, her resentment of her oldest sister being sent to college, and she wasn't, you know, on and on. It It, it goes like that. And that's, there's that loose crazy notion of character we we write characters but then the concept of character somebody has a good or bad character let's say and i think when you talk about that to me somebody with a good character is like the person you were describing competitive with herself uh wanting to do well for others trying to have a good life and be good to others and so on, not to be a Pollyanna but uh, I, I, I think that was just taken out of my the equation for my mother in, in many ways because of the absence of, of love in her family I don't think she liked I think she liked one of her brothers I don't think she liked her siblings Hmm. at all, really
0: it's a tough home life I mean it's like again this can get a little bit simplistic psychologically but you look at somebody who is dysfunctional or difficult in their adult life and can be even quite monstrous you know you can point to any number of people in the you know in the uh, culture Or in the political culture, you can think of it, you know, obvious ones where you're like, wow, like, how does somebody turn out like
1: this?
0: (laughs) And then I can start to investigate myself a little bit and be like, am I capable of any kind of compassion for people who do monstrous things? And the closest I'm ever able to get is to think of them as children. I mean, again, it's a little bit simplistic because there are plenty of people to whom monstrous things are done when they're children who don't turn out to be monster, you know, monstrous in their adult lives. But at some point along the way, a person who is um, as closed down or like shut down when it comes to love and care and warmth as your mother was in her adult life—some she was ha- had to have been deeply wounded as a child.
1: Yeah, and I think um, her inability to get past that and want the best want to want to love her children even though she wasn't loved i I think that's a character flaw let's put it that way Mm. because you know we know loads of people who have not had good parenting who turn out to be much better parents than they had and much kinder and so on but yeah uh it's hard not to wish for the rest of your life for a more loving mother.
0: You know? Sure, sure.
1: What would I have been like if I'd had a loving mother? Maybe very boring, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many books you would have written. Who knows? <laughs> That's true, <laughs> who knows? So I want to talk to you, before I let you go, about the section of the book that we alluded to earlier, which is the section in which your mother dies. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, it's some of the best writing on the dying process that I've read, bearing witness to somebody in death in a clear-eyed way. Um, There's nothing, what's the word I'm looking for? Airbrushed (laughs) about what you put down. Uh, It is both a gruesome and a deeply mysterious and just wild process to bear witness to.
1: Yes. I yes. mean,
0: and and just decisions that you made creatively as a writer in rendering that section of the book i'm curious to hear you talk about it
1: i'm curious what decisions you're talking about i mean
0: i mean describing just the physical part of yes. it you know like I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll tell you uh candidly that the 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 image that stays with me as a reader is the description of your mother's open mouth you know these are the parts of death that i think most us as people who are healthy, yeah. you know, and have not yet died or maybe, or maybe who have not faced death as, yes. uh, you know, at, at such close range, but this is what it looks like, you know, or can look like, you know, there are a lot of aspects of it that, you know, we'd rather, I think maybe not think about. And yet here you are saying, this is what it was. This is, this is how she looked. And you're a very careful an unflappable observer on the page.
1: It was uh, it was fascinating in the sense that I couldn't take my eyes away, even though she was not moving at all. Because you know the body is moving organ to organ and shutting down, sort of. It's just the the body is going, but it was the silence. When my mother didn't speak at all, uh, that it was so eerie, that silence, uh, because what you're wondering is what is she feeling? You know, what, is she thinking anything? Uh, I didn't ask her anything. I don't think my, it was as if the process of dying was so extraordinary. It was as if you were watching King Lear's death or something and, they, you know, that you were just in awe. And, in fact, I think I talk about the word awe because it's it's a sound. And I could imagine, you know, early people going, Oh when somebody <laughs> was dying. Right.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, a, a related question. Mm-hmm. You know this feeling of deep fascination and even awe in the presence of death uh, makes me it makes i think anybody think about, well, what's next, if anything? Your mother was an atheist. Mm-hmm. You yourself, I don't know if you define yourself as an atheist, but I think I think you write that you don't you didn't feel like she was going anywhere. Like that wasn't your sense, yeah,
1: i'm I'm definitely a, a, an atheist. I wish you know i i worry. i think it's a very you know i just don't want it to be very painful when i go
0: <laughs> yeah i think a lot of us feel that way like you know <laughs> not looking forward to the process i think being dead should be pretty easy but dying is the hard part right <laughs>
1: right
0: well and i mean there's a gosh this is a section of the book that we we haven't touched upon um but i probably should before i let you go is there's a nurse, I believe, in hospice care who looks at you and says, "What well, dying is hard.
1: She's She was in hospice care. She We brought her home from uh, from the hospital when my mother was, at, you know, that last time she was in the hospital for pneumonia when they were trying to, and we brought her home with us, and she was an emergency room nurse. She was not a hospice nurse, and... As soon as she said that to me, because my she was turning my mother. My mother was like an ironing board at this point. There was no fluid in her, nothing, you know. And but when she turned my mother to clean her up, as she would say, uh, my mother would moan. You know, it was it was disturbing, or it caused pain, or so on. And when she said that, you know dying is hard or it's painful or something, I knew she had to go because you don't have to have a painful death. And that was, you know, when I went in that part of the book, well a little later in the post-mortem part of the book, I became very fascinated by death, by and what hospice care was. And so I talk about that the fact one of the hospice nurses told me that people don't want a dying person to get morphine because maybe they'll get addicted, for instance. Morphine, which takes the pain away, uh, is so disturbing. families keep the, the, the patient, the dying person from having a release from pain. It's, it's, it's very disturbing.
0: It's unne- see, like you say, a painful death is at this stage of medical history unnecessary.
1: It's mostly unnecessary. I imagine there are some forms of where there would be some pain. I don't, I don't know, but overall, you give the patient what they need in order not to suffer.
0: Well, and if they're really at the end. Yes. Why why is addiction even an issue? I mean, come on. I know. Well, <laughs> that's
1: the that's that's the crazy thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, in addition to this nurse um who you let go who was insensitive to your mother's pain, uh, you know, there is the I guess the character, the person who was her longtime live-in caregiver mm-hmm. named Mary, I believe in the book. And
1: Fra- Francis oh is that you didn't you didn't read the finished book you read the i, I
0: have the galley i have the galley here so yeah,
1: well, the, the finished book is differences
0: oh okay okay well but same but the person is the same person who performed yes. the same function in your mother's right. life and uh i would be remiss if i did not mention the hired caregivers yes who provide care to those in the declining stages of their lives
1: that's right and who
0: are so essential to a family sanity, oftentimes, and right. to the, the quality of life experienced by people right. who are up That's in age, uh, and yet, complicated.
1: So, completely complicated, and I don't know if anyone else has written about this. I don't know of um, so closely. I couldn't leave it out, though it is a very thorny issue and deals with race and class, and I... And I had to confront those issues because they were a very important part of those 11 years. And it is so complex because this is another human being who becomes a part of the family and is also not part of the family. Very, very confusing. I learned a great deal. I learned things that I didn't want to know, frankly.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. And I'll leave it to readers to discover those thorny complexities but you know we're we're not going to obviously be able to get to it all in this episode but i think we've given listeners uh a fine foundation uh to go read the book on their own and to understand uh you know one family's experience with this intimately so many of us will come up against this in our lives caring for an ailing parent it's not a rare experience.
1: No, it's very, it's, it's typical. And, um, I wanted the book to be informative. I, 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 I wanted that fog that I walked into to have some more shape to yeah.
0: it. I found, I mean, I have parents who are approaching 80, you know, and so I'm looking and thinking well, I mean, this could happen to me, obviously, you know, so I found it to be interesting in those regards, you know, especially the parts where it's like you're really advocating, you know, and having to be sharp and on your guard a bit um, when you come up against, for example, an arrogant doctor right, <laughs> who right. is l- lacking in the uh, necessary self-doubt. And I think too, you know, it's a book that, you know, allows you as a reader to feel by proxy some very difficult stuff, um, it's a kind of preparation. I think that books often form, perform this function for me, you know, where I get to sort of rehearse, uh, you know, or test myself against the author and and his or her material. And it was just wonderful. I loved it. And I congratulate you on it because these kinds of books are not, I mean, no book is easy to write, but the, the kind of book that wades into this kind of delicate and difficult emotional terrain, that's so deeply personal is maybe especially so so kudos to you
1: thank thank you Brad and um, maybe one day we'll discuss uh, your book which I I read
0: yeah I mean you can you can interview me about it okay (laughs) and by the way we should say I mean in full disclosure you make a cameo in my book
1: yes I was very surprised I
0: know and you know I should say I should say to you uh, I was going to tell you off the air but I'll tell you on the air You know, there is, I I was trying to think, you know, people ask me sometimes like, well, how did you pick which guests would appear in these cameos? And what I always say is that like, it was, it wasn't like my choice. They just sort of emerged because the truth is that so many of the conversations I've had for this show have been wonderful. Like even the vast majority of them, I get something from them, which is why I keep doing it. But certain episodes stand out, certain episodes and conversations in the context of writing my book emerged as just like the natural choice. And when I think about why you appeared in the part of the book that you appeared in, it has something to do with what I would call like your philosophical nature and also like your psychological wisdom, like hard won psychological wisdom. The work that you've done and at that point in the book and with the kind of book that i was writing mm-hmm. a writer with a philosophical bent uh, and a kind of a tough-minded writer as i would put it mm. that's what i needed so you showed up and i had no choice lynn but to, <laughs> but to include you and i remember the, i remember those moments there was a standout conversation it just you know maybe it was just the day but i remember we had a great time and uh, i remember feeling like oh she can just stay i don't want her to leave <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wanted to leave either, and I wanted to know more about your son and all of that, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. Congratulations on mother care. I always ask people, as I'm closing, if they're working on anything else. It's fine if you're just celebrating the publication of this one, but do you have another book in the works?
1: Um, I am working on a bunch of different essays, uh, but I began, I began to assemble... Some ideas, and I have a character, which is always the beginning for me. Okay. So, maybe
0: we'll see. TBD.
1: Maybe, maybe. <laughs> right?
0: As they E-G-A. say. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, I really appreciate the time. It's a great conversation. I wish you well, and we'll look forward to uh, whatever you come up with next.
1: Thank you, Brad.
0: All right, folks, there we go. That was Lynn Tillman, and her new book is called Mother Care on Obligation, Love, Death, and Ambivalence. It is an autobiographical essay-slash-memoir available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Lynn Tillman on social media. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at Glossitis. And on Instagram, her handle is at Tillman underscore glossitis one more time the book is called mother care by Lynn Tillman a stirring and deeply affecting work of nonfiction available now from soft skull go get your copy right away if you like this program I hope you will take a couple of minutes to rate it and review it that helps the show can you do that wherever you listen like over at Apple podcasts or something rate the show write a little review it helps other listeners find the show in the algorithm the other people podcast is offered freely every single episode more than a decade's worth of conversations almost 800 at this point are all available to listeners free of charge it's a listener supported show so if you tune in regularly if you get something from it throw a couple of bucks in the hat every month you can do uh, as little as $1 a month I've tried to make it simple and to accommodate, you know, all different levels of support. And as you move up the scale, you can get gear, a t-shirt, a tote bag, and other people sticker, a book club subscription. There's all kinds of options. Check it out over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other P-P-L pod. All right. You can also get a copy of my new novel published this past spring. It's called Be Brief. And tell them everything. It's available from IG Publishing and Trade Paperback and ebook. It's also available in an audiobook edition narrated by yours truly. That is available from uh, Highbridge Audio. So, again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you want to read my book, you can do that. The Other People Podcast has its own official app, it is free. Go get the app wherever the uh, apps in your universe are available. If you would like to get an Other People t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. These are good t-shirts. They're soft, they fit well, they look good. There's a new collection out for 2022, the the 2022 collection of Other People t-shirts. Now available, check it out, otherppl.com. I recommend these t-shirts, people. The Other People show also has its own YouTube channel. Are you aware of this? If you are a YouTube person, Search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then subscribe. Press the subscribe button. It's free. It helps the show when you subscribe over at YouTube. All right, that's it for today. Fun talking with Lynn Tillman always. I will be back next week with, I believe, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who has just published an astonishing memoir of her own. So, stay tuned, and I will talk to you shortly.